Amen. If you have a Bible, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 20, chapters 26 and 27 and get a little bonus content today. We're even going to get a couple verses of 28 before the day's over. So uh, 1 Samuel chapters 26 and 27, we'll be looking at both of these chapters. But right now, uh, I want to read to you uh, chapter 27, verse 8, down into chapter 28, verse 2. Chapter 27, verse 8, if you'll open there. As you're opening there, uh, let me just say how grateful I am to have each of you here this morning and what a wonderful joy it is to hear you sing. We love to hear you sing. And, uh, um, you know, I wouldn't even mind if we turned Nathan's mic up a little bit. Uh, I've heard him sing. Uh, we've got recordings. In fact, the TV ministry records just Nathan every week, and I listen to it later in the week. And, um, and, uh, it's really beautiful. I'm going to sell copies at next year's auction. Pretty excited about that. And so get, get ready for that. <laughs> so uh, all that being said, man, what a joy it is to hear you singing praises to the Lord. And uh, certainly miss Atlanta today. And uh, but what a joy it is to get to worship with the Lord's people. If you have your Bibles open there, why don't you stand with me, if you don't mind, out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us, beginning in chapter 27, verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jeremelites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for this opportunity we have today to hear from your word, to worship with your people, to pray. And oh God, I pray today as this word is preached that you will change your hearts, our hearts and our minds with the gospel of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes, and maybe especially when it comes to our relationship with God, sometimes we are afraid to admit the truth. We're afraid to admit the truth. I, I can't begin to tell you the number of times I've sat down with someone uh, either in my study or at lunch or over coffee or something like that, someone who wanted to meet with me to talk about their relationship with the Lord. And they begin with things like, Brother Matt, I just can't believe I'm going to tell you this. I, I just want you to know, sometimes I struggle with doubt. 
and I say, I hope you know, I need to tell you this, I don't know how you're going to feel about it, sometimes I struggle with doubt, okay? I don't know how that makes you feel about your pastor, but I hope you know that pastors aren't sent down from heaven. My wife thinks that, but everyone else needs to know <laughs> that, you know, we're not just dropped down <laughs> like a golden fleece out of heaven. No, we don't have perfect, you do, yeah, thanks, baby. We don't have these perfect walks and relationships with the Lord. But sometimes we're afraid to admit, and I think some of that, some of the problems in Christian culture, some of the things we try to pretend like everyone's got it all together, but we really don't. I think we all know that, know ourselves hopefully well enough to know we don't have it all together. We don't have a perfect walk with the Lord. All of us, though, at different moments would admit, I think, in a moment of honesty, that at different times it feels like following Jesus is hard. <laughs> Now, you've heard the verses, you've heard all the beautiful things. Jesus says, come to me, all you're weary, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus says, come to me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we know that there's joy in the Lord, that we ought to enjoy following Jesus. But we should all admit, I'm sure, as long as it's the case, and I think for most of us, that sometimes it's hard. There's often a distress in our devotion to Jesus. There's difficulty in following Christ. Ezra Koenig is the lead singer and lyricist for one of my favorite bands, uh, Vampire Weekend. He also happens to be Jewish, so when he addresses matters of religion in his lyrics, which in Vampire Weekend's earlier work is not very often, but in a lot of their later work, it's very frequently. I guess as they sort of came of age, they begin to deal with more serious themes. But it, all that being said, when they deal with God or they deal with religion in their lyrics, when Ezra Koenig writes about these things, it is often poignant and it's often pointed about struggles with believing in God in ways that only Jewish people uh, can be poignant. They're uniquely able to be very honest, I've learned over the years, about their relationship with God. From the earliest days of my encounters with reading Elie Wiesel in college, even now to listening uh, to bands, you can tell Jewish people are unafraid typically to be very honest about how they feel about God. In one of their songs, it's called Yahweh, which is an intentional homophone for God's revealed name in scripture, Yahweh. And so you listen to the song and it's kind of a little bit of a, a pop song, kind of sounds really happy. But as you start to listen to the lyrics, you realize there's a lot going on under the surface. Even though it sounds like a pop song title, Yahweh, in reality, he's dealing with and expressing his difficulty with belief. Listen to the, the lyrics here. This is the chorus of the song. He says this, Through the fire and through the flames, you won't even say your name. Only I am that I am. But who could ever live that way? And then they start to say, Yahweh, Yahweh. That is, in the midst of the fires and flames of life, and some of you may feel that way right now. I'm in the middle of the fires and the flames, and what Koenig says is he feels here like God is distant and remote. In fact, he reinterprets God's revelation of his own name, Yahweh, and saying, I am that I am. He, re he reinterprets that as another sign of God's distance, his inability to see God for who he is. He sees God then as distant and remote, and I don't think he's the only one. In, in fact, I would go as far as to say that even many Christians must recognize that faith is not always easy. And many Christians, even in this very room, because of the fires and the flames of life, you find yourself saying, where in the world is God? Maybe not as far as to say you won't even say your name. Only I am that I am. But you might sometimes wonder, 
what good is it to have this, quote, personal relationship with Jesus if in my most difficult moments I feel like he's not even there? I want to say a couple things to you. First of all, that's a normal way to feel. In fact, if you read throughout the Bible, you'll see God's people feeling the same way over and over and over again. So what do we do when devotion is distressing? What do we do when following Jesus is hard? I want to show you three truths this morning from these couple of chapters about the distress of devotion. Sometimes Christianity is presented as all perfect peace all the time. But this morning what I want to do is talk about what we do when our walk with God is less than peaceful. Three truths this morning from these verses I think to help us in these moments when devotion can be distressing. Here's the first point this morning. Devotion is distressing when your problems persist. Devotion is distressing when your problems persist. Well, I want you to see as our story continues here with David, chapter 26, verse 1, we realize some characters from earlier in the narrative have returned. The Ziphites are back. Back in chapter 23, they had already, presumably in order to kind of save their own hide, if Saul decides to go on the warpath again, they'd already gone in a way to sort of curry favor with King Saul. They'd already gone and sold David out once before, and now they're doing it again. And so using the, the, the military intelligence that the Ziphites provided, Saul takes 3,000 soldiers to go and chase David out again. Saul has been whipped into a sort of fury, whipped into a rage, and is seeking out who he sees as his rival David, but whom God has, as we know, appointed as king. Then, through his own military intelligence operation, David determines Saul's location along with his top general. So David sends out spies and learns where he is. So, so get this picture in your head. Here's what David's been doing. David's on the run from Saul. He's doing all he can to try to make a living. In the previous uh, chapter, we see the way that David is trying to eke out a living in the meantime. So he's trying to do whatever he can do with his men to try to provide for his 600 soldiers. And we learn that David and others now have wives and children along with them as well. So David is a small city unto himself at this point. So he's got to find a way to provide for these people, some way to make a living. And so he begins by trying to offer protection for shepherds of wealthy merchants in the region. And as you know, that doesn't go so well uh, with uh, the fool in the previous chapter, chapter 25, though he does wind up with a wife named Abigail in the whole situation. So that doesn't work out well with Nabal. And now Saul is coming after him again. And at this point, David's recognizing, I'm not going to be able to just hide out here and try to do these different things. It's a really hard way to live. So he's kind of being put up in a corner, kind of being put against the wall by Saul. And Saul has 3,000 soldiers against David's 600. Isn't it strange, though? When you stop and think about this, if you've read through this book at all, if you spent time with this, some of you, this may be your first time here, and it may be the first you know of any of this. Let me just tell you something about the Bible. Uh, two chapters before this, in chapter 24, we have a very similar scenario play itself out. In fact, some commentators see it as a problem. 
right? That you have two such similar scenarios so close to one another. Where these, some, some people have a different view of the Bible than the one I have, and they say, well, these are just two legends that are presented from two different perspectives. This is one event that just has different details around it. But I, I genuinely think it's two similar situations that authentically happen two times. I think there's enough variegation around the details that it's clear that that's the case. All that being said, nonetheless, the astute reader recognizes perhaps the, the chronicler, the one who wrote this book, Samuel, didn't have to include them both. He didn't have to include both stories. I'm sure there are plenty of stories about David that aren't included in the narrative of Samuel. So why? Why put these two stories so close to one another? Why see these similar scenarios in a row like this? Well, I, I'll tell you this. The same thing that's true of these passages is true of something I've learned in life. Problems persist. <laughs> We very rarely find ourselves in the same circumstances one time. So often, over and over again, we find ourselves in similar circumstances with similar temptations. It's very rare that I counsel someone in the course of a year about five or ten different things. Right? Well, Brother Matt, let me tell you, the lying is handled. Now let's deal with lust. You know, almost never is that the case. Usually we're talking about the same thing over and over and over and over again. And guess what I'm praying to the Lord for delivery on so often? The same thing over and over and over again. It's rare, it's so rare that God just gives us neat, clear, clean deliverance from all our problems in a moment. And that's, that's the preachers love those kinds of testimonies, right? I mean, we, we love these sorts of testimonies. One day I was in a ditch um, and the needle was still hanging out of my arm and a preacher came by and dropped a tract in the ditch. I prayed to receive Jesus and I've never wanted drugs again. You know, I was in this sort of situation and I've never desired that sin again. Preachers love those sorts of testimonies and they are extremely, exceedingly, overwhelmingly rare. So often the way the Christian life really works and the way our problems really work is I was in the ditch dealing with whatever it was I was dealing with and I've had to cling with white knuckles to faith ever since because every day I have to fight off the urge to go back to what I was. In fact, I have a couple times. And by God's grace through His people, I've been restored more than once. That's usually how things work. I've learned this about problems. They tend to persists. And I think so often we get this sense that once our problems are confessed and repented of, that they ought to just magically go away, but they don't. I think this is one reason why the Bible is showing us the compulsive nature of Saul here, the way Saul in chapter 24 seemed to have repented, and yet here he is still pursuing David again. The way David showed him that he saved his life, it should have been enough for Saul to stop chasing David. It should have been enough for him to give up, but it wasn't because that's how sin works. That's how life works. I love the earthiness of the Bible. I love the way it's so true to life. It's so uh, reflective and redolent of the way the world actually is. We talk all the time about how we ought not to have dust on our Bibles, but I love the fact that there's dust on the pages of the Bible. The Bible is like the world is. That's how it is. Usually things, simply put, are messy. <laughs> Usually things 
are messy. But here we have David on the run still and Saul coming doing the same thing he was doing before. And I want you to consider this when you consider your own sin problems, your own difficulties with repentance. Consider the way Saul is behaving. Is he repentant or is he a raging madman? Even the way the narrative develops during this time. As you read through. Here's the deal. That had to happen because everything has to break in this church today. It's just everything has to go wrong today. Um, it's perfect. Uh, one, of, one of my sins is wanting to throw this microphone through the window. Uh, that's one temptation I have. And so I deal with it every Sunday, you know, every single Sunday. That's a temptation I deal with. And so here you see me dealing with it right now in, in front of you. Here's, here's the reality. Every, uh, pro presenter needs to, everything needs to break uh, today. So that's part of it. Here's the thing. Life is messy, right? Uh, you feel like you're yourself as you read through these passages. You almost start to feel like David, like you yourself are hiding in the wilderness, running from a king. You never quite know what kind of story is going to happen next. The, the text is really disjointed. And I think some of that is intentional to show us the way that Saul's sin is impacting not only David, but his own country. He's called to leave, lead. Our problems persist and our sin problems persist. But not only that, the problems of our trials persist. Not only are we like Saul in the sense that our sins persist, but we're like David in the sense that our trials are persistent. They rarely have clean ends, right? Our, our, our trials are very rarely just neat and clean over with. In fact, so often, that's the sort of counseling I give to people. They come to me and say, I really thought this was over with, but it's, it's not. It's persisting. Brothers and sisters, that's when our devotion is sometimes the most distressing, it is sometimes the most distressing when we find ourselves with persistent problems. How do we answer this, though? I, I want to encourage you, I want to advocate for you addressing your persistent problems with persistent prayer. Answer your persistent problems with persistent prayer. Lydia read this beautiful psalm for us earlier, Psalm 54. And I, I want to make sure you read and hear this superscription. Listen to what, how Psalm 54 is presented. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskeel of David, when? When the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? And I want you to notice how David handles this situation in his life. Oh God, Psalm 54 one says, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my Prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth for strangers, not, not Saul, but strangers. People he's done nothing to. The Ziphites have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Brothers and sisters, I am not sure that David would have handled these circumstances as well as he had had he not been persistent in prayer, and taking these things before the Lord. I think so often we're almost ashamed when we find ourselves distressed in our devotion. We're almost ashamed to bring our problems to God. Almost afraid. Is He going to be upset? 
that I'm not as happy as I ought to be right now. But brothers and sisters, I wanted to tell you something. God can handle your problems. He's the best place to go. He's the first place you should go. He wants to hear from you. Answer persistent problems with persistent prayer. Here's our second point this morning. The second point is this. Devotion is distressing when faithfulness is frustrating. Devotion is distressing when our problems persist. But second of all, it's also distressing when faithfulness is frustrating. David and his nephew, verses 6 through 25, as the story continues, David and his nephew Abishai, this is his sister's uh, son, they go down to where Saul was asleep. Later in the text, it tells us it was a deep sleep from the Lord that had come over Saul and his army, including his chief military leader, Abner. Now, I want you to notice the way Abishai, the nephew of David, speaks here. He speaks in a way that's clear. He knows the story. He knows what's going on. He's heard the stories of what Saul had done with the spear that stuck in the ground by his head. I'm sure you'll remember twice. Twice, Saul, in a fit of rage... In a fit of madness, tried to murder David in his own court. And in particular, the way the Bible said is he tried to pin him against the wall with his spear. And twice, David evaded these murder attempts. Unlike Saul, Abishai says, he won't need a second opportunity to pin Saul to the ground, never to get up again. So they pull up, they find the very spear. I I want you to think about this. The very spear, presumably, that Saul had tried to use to kill David with twice. His nephew, Abishai, says, I won't need a second chance. It's sort of similar to some of the taunts you might have heard before, you know. There'll be two hits in that fight, me hitting him and him hitting the ground. He says, I won't need a second opportunity. I won't need two two tries to try to pin him down like he needed to for you. We'll take care of this right now. David reminds Abishai of the horrible sin of striking the Lord's anointed. It's the wrong thing to do. But I want you to see that David also expresses a particular kind of faith in verse 10. He said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. This shows David's development from chapter 24 until now. Perhaps what David learned in the situation with Nabal, where God did strike Nabal dead on his own without David having to do it. Now David has a certain kind of faith, a certain sort of trust in the Lord, a radical faith, even when in this moment faithfulness had to be frustrating. So instead of leaving, knowing he's no longer hunted, instead he leaves holding the king's spear and the king's water jug. And they sneak out, thanks again to that deep sleep, without anyone noticing. And then David gets far enough away, a safe distance away, and he decides to make his presence known. And interestingly enough, he calls out Abner. I find this kind of funny. I think David's making a little sport with him. Abner is in David's old job. He's the commander of Saul's army. So this is something David used to do. And so part of Abner's command here would be to try to what? Protect the king no matter what. So notice what David does in verses uh, 15 and 16. He's giving him a little bit of a hard time, I think. He says to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your lord, the lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at 
his head. So David's sort of calling out across the valley, things sure don't look so good in the secret service ever since I left. You're leaving your main priority open to destruction. Saul again seems to be repenting. He calls David my son again. And again, David proclaims his innocence against Saul and asks, why are you coming out against a flea like a partridge, like you're on some royal hunting expedition, just trying to kill a little bird calling out here in the wilderness. Finally, David, though Saul tries to indicate that he's repentant, nonetheless, David sends back the spear and goes on his way despite Saul's repetition of fake repentance. I want you to notice, though, one parting line in verse 24 of chapter 26. Notice what David says as he goes, Saul, behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. David knows he has no hope in Saul changing at this point. No hope in Saul relenting. His only hope is in the Lord. I want to tell you something, guys. Faith so often requires patience. And patience is annoying. You know it is. I know it is. We all hate waiting. I know you hate waiting. I know that you'll spend 45 minutes driving to restaurants to find a short wait when the first one had a wait of 45 minutes. I know what you do. So often faith requires us to wait when we don't want to. Faithfulness can be so frustrating. Can you imagine how frustrated Abishai was? This is my chance to be the one who secured David's kingdom. This is David's chance to be done with being chased. And yet faithfulness can be frustrating. But will we respond appropriately when faithfulness is frustrating? That is, will we practice radical, active faith in the Lord? Active, vibrant trust in God. I mean, it's as simple as nothing seems to make more sense right now. Nothing, nothing is piquing my interest and my desires right now quite like doing the wrong thing. But God, I trust you and I trust it's better to do the right thing when it feels wrong than it is to do the wrong thing when it feels right. And brothers and sisters, there is only one way to make the right call there, and that's by active, radical faith in God in the moment. Because nothing in our instincts, nothing in our bodies, nothing in our souls is telling us anything but you must do what you want to do. You see it already in these things that David has said in this chapter, but see it also in verses 4 and 5 of the 54th Psalm. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. What is David confessing? It's not my place to put an end to my enemies. It's God's place to do it. Devotion is distressing, my friends, when our problems persist. Devotion is distressing when faithfulness is frustrating. And finally, devotion is distressing when the promises are prolonged. Devotion is distressing when the promises are prolonged. Notice something 
Before we move on to chapter 27, notice something David says to Saul. We've not mentioned it yet, but chapter 26, verse 19, David says something. He says, Now therefore, let my Lord the King hear the words of his servant. It is the Lord, if it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. And so David is saying, listen, I'm doing all I can just to eke out an existence here in Judah in my home turf. Hoping just to be free from Saul chasing me. But Nabal thwarts his plans to try to earn a living in that way. And then Saul is still chasing him. So finally David says, listen Saul, if you keep chasing me in this way, what you're ultimately saying is you have no place in the Lord's heritage. That is, you have no place in the land which God has given to our forefathers. That is what Saul is effectively saying to David. He says in this verse is, you are telling me that I must be cut off from the promises of God. And so that's what David does. He leaves the land which God had promised. He leaves the places that God has promised and he flees to Gath, the hometown of Goliath, into Philistine territory and he pledges fealty to Achish. This is the second time he's done it. The first time he was poorly received by others there and pretended to be someone else, pretended to be a madman in order to be saved. But this time he admits straight up to Achish who he is and, and promises himself as a mercenary warrior in Achish's service. But David, and we can talk about the morality of how David behaved during this season, but at the very least we can understand why he was put in a position like this. He's still loyal to the Lord and his people, so he can't carry out raids against Judah. He can't carry out raids against his countrymen, but he doesn't really want Achish to know that he's still faithful to his countrymen. He's sort of between a rock and a hard place. So here he is doing all that he can. Uh, Achish gives him a village called Ziklag, and so he moves to Ziklag, and without Akish sort of being able to look over his shoulder, what he does is he begins to carry out raids in places as a mercenary warrior in order to enrich himself and to provide for his people. And so he would wipe out these whole villages in order that they couldn't come back and tell Akish what's going on. And so what he would do then is come home, and Akish would say, Okay, so where'd you go today? And he would say, Oh, you know, over in Judah. He's taking care of business over there. You know how we are, us Philistine guys. You know how we act. He would say, I was over here against these uh, Judean uh, allies, taking care of business. So Akish believes that David has alienated himself from his own people and will even be willing to go to all-out war against Israel, we see later in ch chapter 28, verse 1. In fact, Akish is starting to think, this guy is, has so made himself a stench among his own people, he's going to be my personal bodyguard. Now, I want you to think about this. David is essentially cut off from every one of God's promises in this moment. It's easy for us to understand the primary promise. It's the one we mainly think about when we think about David. David has been promised that he will be king, right? And so clearly, as long as Saul is king and chasing David, David can't be king. And that's primarily what we think about. But at this point, things have gotten even worse. David sees himself as cut off from all of God's promises because he cannot inhabit the land. He cannot worship with the people of God. The promises that were made to Abraham were the promise of God's people in God's place under God's rule. And all of those promises David finds himself cut off from, including the heritage of kingship, which God has promised him. But in the middle of all of this, 1 Samuel 
chapter 27, verse 6, we see a little grace note. Uh, Just a little thing that's pointing us to the future. A a little thing that's showing us that God is faithful even in these circumstances. Something David couldn't have known, but something that's there for us, for the reader. A little hint about Ziklag, the city I mentioned that Achish had given to David. 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 6 says this, So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. What does that mean? What's that little grace note there? It's a reminder to the reader that one day David will be king. And even this little city of refuge called Ziklag in Philistine territory will one day belong to all the kings of Judah. It's a sign that God keeps his promises. That when God makes a promise, it's as good as done. Brothers and sisters, sometimes it feels to us like God's promises are prolonged. When you came to follow Jesus, you felt like peace and joy and love and hope were all yours to be had anytime you wanted them, and yet you're struggling to see them. You're struggling to find them. But even when it seems like God's promises are prolonged, that does not mean for one moment that God has forgotten you. What it means is that we must look forward, knowing and trusting, like David did, that when God makes a promise, it's as good as done. It's how he finishes this psalm about this episode in his life. Verses 6 and 7 of the 54th Psalm say, With a free will offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Brothers and sisters, when this text is being written, that's not true. (laughs) That's not true. David is persisting in prayer. David is giving active faith in God. And God is believing in the future that one day what God has promised will be true. And God is saying, when I look on Saul right now, even though it seems like he is victorious, he's as good as beat. God has delivered me from every trouble because that's how God keeps his promises. Oh, my friends, our problems persist. Our faithfulness can be so frustrating. And God's promises can feel so prolonged. In every generation and in every age, God's people cry out, How long, O Lord, until you deliver me? Through the fire and through the flame of life, we may feel like God is distant and removed. But what God has done is so much better than simply giving us His name. He has given us his son whose very name is God saves and it was him our Lord Jesus Christ this greater son of David a king of Judah who reigns not over Ziklag and not over Israel and not only over Judah but over every square inch of territory in this world and the next our Lord Jesus Christ himself walked through the fire and the flame of life for us he accepted he absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf Will you look, will you trust, will you believe that all of God's promises find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, I hope you will. Would you persist in prayer to our Lord Jesus? 
our advocate before the Father? Would you actively, radically trust our Lord Jesus Christ? Put radical faith in Him, even when it feels frustrating to do it. Would you remember that God's promises are not prolonged, that God's promises are fulfilled? They have all found their yes and amen in Jesus. And we long, even now, for Him to return. Brothers and sisters, would you trust God even when it feels like it's the wrong thing to do? Even when it might seem like you'll be miserable if you do it? Today, my prayer is that as you pray, as you trust, as you look to the future, I pray for you that the distress of your devotion will be turned to the joy of the Lord. I want to offer an invitation today. If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus, I believe if you turn from your sins and repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus, you will be saved. Oh, I'd love to talk with you and pray with you today. Second of all, second of all, you may be a believer. You just need someone to pray with. Uh, you can find a friend out there. You can pray right where you are. You can come talk to me or you can just come pray at this altar. However you want to respond to the Lord. Oh, we hope you will today. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. What joy it would be for me today to talk to you about what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together.